Thank you for listening to Mormon Discussion Podcast. I am your host, Bill Rio. I just want to make a plea to listeners. This podcast survives on the financial contributions of listeners like you. Please help keep the podcast alive by becoming a premium subscriber by going to mormondiscussionpodcast.org and becoming a subscriber today. You can do so for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. This greatly supports the podcast. Also, don't forget the new bookstore that you can reach on the website by clicking the link, Bookstore. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real, and I'm grateful to be with you today. Today I was hoping to talk a little bit about my testimony and to help you see how I frame important principles and ideas within the gospel. I do have a testimony, and there are... There are things I know, things I believe, things I have faith in, and things I hope in. So let's break some of those down, and then at the end I'd like to share my testimony with you. A testimony in the way that I would share it in testimony meeting. Let me first talk about scripture. Scripture to me are are written stories and teachings that a community accepts as scripture. Scripture is not necessarily all the words of God. Scripture is not necessarily every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. It's not like all of Scripture is is true or historical, but it does connect me with the divine, and, and that claims to be its purpose. And so when I look at the Old Testament, little, I mean, just the very beginning, the garden and the creation, I see as figurative. I see it as God's way of trying to tell us the story of the pre-mortal life. Is Abraham real? Is Moses real? Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe Moses and Abraham are real, but lots of the stories attributed to them, even those from this dispensation, are embellished or exaggerated. But the whole point is that Scripture draws me closer to Christ, to God, to the divine, to my spiritual self, And so as such, I see scripture as useful, as helpful, as needed. Let's talk about the Book of Mormon specifically. Is the Book of Mormon historical? I have no idea. I've got no clue. Is Lehi a real prophet? Is Nephi a real person? I don't know. What I do know is that every time I read that book and read from its pages, I am uplifted. I am inspired. I feel drawn closer to God. I feel a greater encouragement and motivation to be better than what I am. I tell people all the time, if the church decides to distance itself from me, I will be taking the Book of Mormon with me. I no longer care if it's historical. I only know that it has put me in touch with Christ's grace and his mercy. And I feel it when I study the principles of that book. Now, I will say, I no longer read the book as a book, reading it from front to back and and figuring out the stories and where people came from and where they're going and what they're doing. Rather, I've read it so many times that I now pick out places where I feel connected to the divine. I'll read Alma chapter 5, Alma chapter 32, Mosiah chapter 18, Second Nephi chapter 4, and the like. I'll read scripture for what it is, and I'll find scripture within the book. To me, scripture and canon are very different. So the next question I wanted to pose is what I think about prophets. And I should probably start with Joseph Smith. 
I can't explain Joseph's experience away completely as a fraud. Yet I also can't explain Joseph Smith's experience away as all the dots connecting to the story that he told us. I see the the occultic or magical practices that the Smith family and others in the community had. I see the connection to guardian spirits and buried treasure. And yet, out of the restoration comes something, something divine. There are things there that Joseph brings out, that Joseph restores, that I consider valuable, that I consider of worth, and I consider of God. And so the restoration to me, do I take it exactly the way it's told to me? Nope, not at all. Do I still hold on to faith that God was working in the midst of that? Yes, I do. And so to me, there's something true and real with the restoration and with Joseph Smith. So what about prophets after Joseph? I don't know. I mean, I look at Brigham Young, and he doesn't seem to be really claiming to be a prophet, at least especially not early on. And it's only when he gets out west and he seems to really recognize how much power and control he has that he begins to kind of share with others that he has that prophetic office. I look at all the prophets since Brigham and I see so little revelation, so little seeing, so little prophesying that I don't, I don't see those men as prophet seers and revelators in the sense that they are always acting as prophet seers and revelators. In fact, Joseph Smith said a prophet is only a prophet. When acting as such. And so I look at our prophets, seers, and revelators, and our apostles. And I say, look, God has given them keys. God has called them to a sacred office. Their job are to be protectors and guardians of the saving ordinances. And if, if God ever chooses to speak to the world, he'll do so through those appointed servants. But God is speaking to lots of people on a small scale. And I just think he rarely, since Joseph Smith, desires to speak on a large scale, or at the very least, we certainly aren't ready or asking for those things that he wants to share. And so I don't see President Monson as talking to Jesus. I don't see President Hinckley as having spoken to Jesus. And those men may have had some sacred experiences which bind their hearts and their testimony, but it seems even Elder Oaks recently acknowledged that all 15 men have not seen Christ. And so for me, prophets are, are men who, in their weakness, in fact, if you look at DNC 1, DNC 1 says the prophets will be the servants of, that God picks out of the world who are, who are most weak, who will err at times, who will make mistakes, and who will be flawed men, and who will need to repent continually. And yet, as God always says, he will make those weak things become strong. Not that they're, being weak, they all of a sudden, in a flick of a finger, become these near-perfect men, but rather that God shows his marvelous works and wonders through these flawed men, and that shows God to even be greater than perhaps what our perception of him is. DNC 1 mentions, I would suggest every member who listens to this, to go back to DNC 1 and read it, and make a list of of the flawed traits that prophets will have. And I think that reading DNC 1 would lower your expectations of them and help you to better understand what a reasonable expectation of them should be. So do I trust every word that prophets say? No. Do I, do I follow and adhere to everything they teach? No. 
only when the Holy Ghost bears witness that it's true. And I no longer expect any direct, specific revelation from prophets, seers, and revelators. Because if you listen to what they say and, and teach in general conference, they are reiterating past teachings and they are sharing general surface level principles. And they certainly bear witness of Christ. But again, that special witness of Christ's name is very different than being a special witness of Jesus Christ himself. And Elder Oaks recently said as much. So what about when I look at truth? I don't see the church as having all truth, nor do I see it claiming to have all truth. I don't see the church as having a huge, significant difference of truth versus other walks of life, other faiths, other other ways in which to to sojourn through this mortal this mortal probation. Rather, I see the church having independent truth, separate from the rest of the world, but I also see different places in the world that have truth separate as well, including from our church. I think God loves all of his children, and he imparts truth to all of his children who stand ready to listen. I don't see Mormonism having any monopoly on truth. I also look at truth as much more messy. There's absolute truth. There's individual truth. That that science tends to give us universal truth, that these things will always work when these conditions are set up. And I find religion teaches us individual truth, teaches us that in the midst of some of us having the same experiences, that we each individually must judge what brings us closer to God and what doesn't, and that those things will be different for each of us. Well, what about priesthood? Does the church have priesthood? I hope it does. But I also believe that if the church has priesthood, so does the rest of the world. Elder Oaks two years ago talked about the sisters in the church have priesthood power and priesthood authority. But you have to, you have to think this through. Where did the sisters get it? Did they get it when they went through the temple? Because some sisters serve as Relief Society presidents having not gone through the temple. Some sisters serve as primary presidents or as young women's presidents without ever having gone through the temple. And yet Elder Oak says that they, when they serve in leadership positions, have priesthood power and priesthood authority. So the other argument is, well, maybe they get it when they're set apart to those offices. And yet there are sisters who have gone through the temple who have never served in those positions, in those callings, or who don't have a calling at that moment. And so the argument for me would be that all of us have priesthood power and priesthood authority. What is priesthood authority? It is to be called and authorized by God to utilize his power to do a work. Didn't the reformers have that? Didn't George Washington have that? Didn't Benjamin Franklin and James Madison, John Adams, didn't they have that? Didn't Christopher Columbus have that? Doesn't the 1978 revelation to some extent say that Confucius and Mohammed had that? And so the moment you back off and you say, look, everybody who's a child of God has priesthood power and priesthood authority to do a work within their own sphere of influence. And then the argument then is narrowed down to the fact of the only thing that men in our church can claim differently is that they've been given priesthood offices. And that those those priesthood offices are only found within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But it opens up a mind to this idea that maybe God's not quite done revealing truth and that the women and sisters of the church who who are pushing and asking 
and desiring for more responsibility, that there just might be something to that the moment we recognize that all of God's children have priesthood power and priesthood authority. And so when I look out at the world, I say, look, many are called, but at present few are chosen. And I wait upon the Lord to give us additional light and truth. What about the temple? Let me start with the temple questions. The temple questions to me are an opportunity to share what direction we're heading. Not necessarily how strong our testimony is. I think the strength of our testimony doesn't matter. Elder Holland even spoke of this in his talk, Lord, I Believe. He spoke of the strength of our testimony is not the issue. It's the direction we face. And he said it this way. The size, and this is what he says, his quote, the size of your faith or the degree of your knowledge is not the issue. It is the integrity you demonstrate toward the faith you do have and the truth you already know. I hope you can see from that, that, that the, um, the strength of your testimony is not the issue. It is the direction you face. It is the integrity with which you hold to that faith, to that direction. That is what is important. And so when I look at the temple questions, I see questions that are being asked of me, what direction do you face? When I'm asked, do I have a testimony of something? I'm not being asked, do I know? I'm being asked, do I have faith that leads to action in that direction? And for me, the temple questions are very easy questions to answer honestly and uprightly and to hold on. And I would say that in each of those questions to you, you may in your mind say, man, this logically just doesn't add up. I just don't, I don't, I don't in my mind think this is true. But if on some level you can say, you know what, but I see some truths there and I see how this draws me closer to Christ and I hope it's true. In my mind, I say it probably isn't, but in my heart, I say, I hope it is. And I will live my life faithful to that hope then I would say you can pass and you need not fear and need not worry about the strength of your testimony in doing so. In terms of the temple, I'm uncomfortable with the temple. I don't enjoy going to the temple. There are only certain ordinances I really wish to partake in there and there are other ones I wish to to not be part of. And yet, no matter what parts and pieces I participate in, to a T every time I walk out of the temple, I feel a greater desire to be a better father, to be a better husband, to be a better person, to be a better child of God. And so for me, the power of the temple is real. It's real. What about the ordinances? What about the ordinances in the temple and the ones that we participate in when we join the church? What about the ordinances of giving blessings? What about the ordinances of of blessing a child? What about the ordinance of the sacrament? I see ordinances as a method that God has developed that gives his children, and as present, only as male children, an opportunity to serve, to sacrifice, to participate in his power. I see ordinances as a moment, in, for those who receive them, I see ordinances as a moment in time when you can stand as a witness before Christ and say, look, I'm on the path. I'm heading the right direction. Because I think in every one of our lives, whether you're President Monson or whether you're Jeffrey Dahmer, there are times where you make the right choice and you do the right thing. And there are other times where you don't, where you sin and where you do the exact opposite of what God would have you do, what he would wish you to do. And I think ordinances give us a moment to demonstrate those those specific moments in time when we were doing the right thing, when we were living up to 
the desires and expectations that God has of us in terms of what direction we are heading, not in terms of being perfect or keeping the commandments perfectly. I see ordinances as necessary. Not necessary in that, in that there really is this direct link that if I don't get my work done in the temple as a deceased person, that I'm just out of luck. They have to be done. No. But rather necessary as they give us moments in time to declare to God what direction we're going. They are an outward expression of an inner commitment to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That phrase should sound familiar. An outward expression of inner commitment. That's the phrase used at the end of the Temple Recommend interview when the priesthood leader reads a statement to you about the sacred and holy garment and about wearing it. It is that the wearing of the garment is an outward expression of an inner commitment to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And I see ordinances in that same light. Ordinances are an outward expression. They are always an outward expression of an inner commitment to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in that way, ordinances are a necessary tool that God uses to help us evaluate where we are because God already knows as he looketh on the heart. What about Jesus? The simplest way I can explain it is I I believe Jesus is real. I don't know that, but I believe it. And and whether he's real or wasn't, what, I I think I think we all can agree that there was this man who lived named Jesus. There's just too much in way of evidence and sources to simply write the man off completely. So absolutely I believe a man named Jesus existed that these stories are attributed to. The question is, did this Jesus truly get crucified on a cross and then rise on the third day? And did he make an atonement for us? And I don't think there's any way to know that. But I believe it. I believe it with all my heart. And even if Jesus as a divine being is not true, I've still been changed by his grace and mercy. I've still been spiritually affected by his life and his example. And so it's indifferent to me. It doesn't matter to me. What matters is that the power of Jesus Christ is real. And so I love the Savior. And I believe in him. And I know in what he stands for. What about God? I have a stronger testimony of God. And I only say that because unlike some members of the church who unfortunately have not had deep spiritual experiences for whatever reason, I don't know why God withheld those. I don't. I only know that I've had some. And some of those have been very direct, very very big, and they're not ones that I can write off. And I'll give you one example. And I've shared this story so many times in so many places. And I apologize if you've heard it so many times. But I know that there's listeners here who ask, Bill, how do you even believe in God anymore? And I would answer and say, when I was serving as bishop, I had several experiences happen that were along these lines, but I'll only share one. I had a time when when just had a normal day, went to work, came home, had dinner, spent time with the family, went to bed. And then at like three o'clock that night, three o'clock in the morning, during the night, I'm woken up out of my sleep and I am absolutely no ifs, ands, or buts directed to pray for a family in our ward. And I did so. I got out of bed, knelt down next to the bed and said a prayer. I wouldn't even remember this at all, other than the fact that my wife woke up as well and she said, Bill, what are you doing out of bed? And I said, I don't know. God woke me up and told me to pray for, for this family. And so I did that and I got back into bed and... That uh, that next day, I get up, take my shower, get ready for work. I head off to work, go about my my normal day, 
I get home that night for dinner, from work, I'm sitting down with my family, and the phone rings, and I have totally forgotten what happened that previous night. A family in the ward calls me up and says, Bishop, Bishop, we uh, we went to the temple with another family, and it was the family that I had prayed for that night previous. They said, we went up a day early, and we, we and see that I should explain this. Unlike Utah, where you guys live 10 minutes, 20 minutes, maybe a half an hour from a temple, the closest temple to me when I lived in Ohio was two and a half hours away. And so members, when they were going to participate in the temple and to receive ordinances, they would go up the night before. And so this, these two families went up that night before to stay and he, and he calls me and he says, Bishop, we went up the night before for, to, to go to the temple the next day and, and I've got good news and bad news. And I said, uh, let me guess. I said, the bad news happened at three o'clock in the morning last night. And he said, how did you know that? And I said, because the Lord woke me up to say a prayer for that family. And he, and he continued to share with me that the good news was that at first when this happened, this incident, it was a young family. The mom was pregnant and at three o'clock that morning she had a miscarriage. And that's pretty tragic for a family, but specifically for that woman. And her first thought was, let's just go home. Let's just go home. Today's not the day. I can't do this. But instead, over the course of the next half hour to hour, she felt some resolution that, that she needed to go to the temple. That it was a net positive for her to go there than to rather than to go home because of what have ha- what had happened. And so that family did that. They went to the temple. And just as I'm explaining, the temple to me has real power. It helps us to be better than what we are. It, it causes some desire within us to grow, to be better than what we are. And I can't explain that experience, that I was woken up out of my sleep. I was directed who to pray for. That family had an incident at that moment, at that moment in time. And on some level, they felt added strength given to them from God to continue on with their day. And so I can't write God off. And so I believe that God is real and that while he lets horrible things happen and seems to intervene sometimes on the most minuscule things, I still hold on to my knowledge that God is real. I'd like to finish by sharing my testimony. When I go up to the stand on Fast and Testimony Sunday, I say something similar to this. And with this, I close out this episode. Before I give it, may I... As always, wish that the Lord warm your shoulders and that he bless you. And with that, my testimony. Brothers and sisters who listen to this podcast, I have a deep testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have a knowledge of the fruits of the gospel. When I live the gospel, I feel power in my life. Its fruits are manifest. I have a knowledge of the power in scriptures. When I read the principles being taught in the Book of Mormon, when I read the teachings of Christ in the New Testament. When I study the scriptures, I feel power. I feel motivation. I feel encouraged. I feel light and knowledge directed to me. I feel God sending a portion of his love into my life. I have a testimony of knowledge of the scriptures. I have a knowledge of God. I know that he is real. I have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I have faith that he died that he rose, that he made an atonement for us. And that faith has been a blessing to me and to my family. I also have faith in his grace and his mercy because they've changed me. I believe in the restoration. I believe that truths were given through Joseph Smith. I believe 
that this work on some level is true. And I have a hope that the restoration is exactly what it claims to be. I have a hope that God speaks through prophets today. When he desires to and when they are ready and willing to ask. And I say that and share that testimony with you in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen.